Welcome to podcast number 54 for Thanks for Your Service. Our focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter and YouTube. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net and you can email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. The Royal Australian Navy has had five ships named HMAS Sydney. The second HMAS Sydney was lost with all hands during World War II and it was only after a remarkable search the wreckage was found some 60 years after she sunk. Let's learn more about the fate of HMAS Sydney too. Joining us on the line from Bunbury in Western Australia is researcher Glenis McDonald. Glenis, many thanks for joining us today. That's fine, happy to. Now, we're going to talk today about the HMAS Sydney II, or two today. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us yep. about the original HMAS Sydney? Um, yeah, well, there's been um, five HMAS Sydneys, but the original one, um, Sydney one, uh, she was a, a town-class cruiser and launched in 1912, so obviously she was involved with the war. Um, and... Strangely enough, she was in with the German-like cruiser, the Emden. Sydney came off better in that little episode, um, and Sydney won some um, decommissioned and sold for scrap metal in 1928. Um, and then along came Sydney too, on that um, three decades of studying, and she was a Leander class cruiser and launched in 1934 and as we know sunk in November 1941. Mm. Now we're, we're going to talk about obviously the Sydney 2 today which disappeared with all hands on the 19th of November 1941. What led to its disappearance? Um, well she held in the Mediterranean. Um, she was responsible for um, the demise of um, Two Italian uh, warships, one the fastest warship on the ocean at the time. So when she came back to Australia in 1940, she came back to a hero's welcome and a ticker tape parade through the streets of Sydney and all the crew were presented with medallions by um, the town of Sydney. And then she headed over to Western Australia under a new captain, Captain Burnett, um, just to do... Uh, well, nothing's routine in wartime, I suppose, but um, convoy escort duty is up to the Sunder Strait and she was coming back one, on one of those um, after taking the Zealandia up to Sunder Strait and in the late afternoon of the 19th of November, she um, sighted a merchant ship and um, proceeded to investigate. And unfortunately, that merchant ship was the sized raider Cormoran. Um, and there was a cat and mouse game um, by Cormoran's captain Detmers to um, lure Sydney as close as possible um, with the advantage of the setting sun. Um, but obviously, Sydney was going in um, believing that she may have um, bailed up um, um, a supply ship, an enemy supply ship, and she was preparing to board uh, when they opened fire simultaneously, virtually at point blank range. And it was the most horrendous 
close range battle that you could imagine when you've got two ships with one with six inch guns, one with 5.9 inch guns and all the other armaments that they carry. Um, and as a result, um, both ships were lost. Um, Cormoran was scuttled and um, about 318 crews embarked in seven craft um, and were picked up over the next eight days, um, ending the war in prisoner of war camps. Um, Sydney was last seen heading southeast, um, heavily on fire, disappeared over the horizon about midnight um, and 645 men virtually disappeared without trace. Mm. So it was a very... Um, hard thing for the families to comprehend. It was very hard for Australians to comprehend how the pride of our fleet should disappear with no survivors and yet there were 318 survivors from a crew of 400 on the Germans. So it was a wound on the heart of the nation really that lasted all those years until we found it. Mm. And for over 60 years her whereabouts remained a mystery. What led to its discovery in 2008? Well, a lot of work by a lot of people. Um, obviously, I always believe once Sydney enters your bloodstream, you can never turn your back on it, no matter how tough the, the going gets. But in 2001, the Finding Sydney Foundation was formed and it was the latest group to try to raise the funds to mount a search. And it costs about $100,000 a day at sea, so $5 million were needed for a reasonable search window. Um, and then in 2004, uh, the Finding Sydney Foundation entered into a memorandum of understanding um, with the famous shipwreck hunter David Mearns um, um, to lead the search at sea should they raise enough money and get going. And then in 2006, um, fresh from my involvement in the Geraldton Memorial Project and the successful discovery of um, the sailors' remains on Christmas Island, they invited me to become a director. Um, and soon after, you know, there'd been a few directors that had come and gone over the years from 2001 and some of them had burnt out with the frustration of trying to succeed in the task. So when I joined, or shortly after, there was only five of us. We were just five ordinary Australians who persevered to raise the funds. Um, and um, eventually uh, we were successful, as sometimes happens. Um, I think life ripples in a pond. I think the fact that the memorial was classed as such a beautiful national memorial and then the success of finding one of the 645 sailors and bringing him home, I think it spurred the government um, and a lot of politicians to support a search and finally we got our money. But the problem was that um, the great depth of water where we were to go to, 3,000 metres, um, until recent years, we didn't have the technology to be able to search. Um, and then there was the problem of not knowing where to search because there were so many varied positions given by the Germans. Um, in fact, 
the position given by the captain and the navigator were about um, 60 miles away from, or 60 kilometres away from where we actually found the ship. So it was not going to be an easy task. And um, But one of the beauties was that the sonar technology had improved so much that the sonar gear that we did eventually get was the best in the world at the time and that allowed us um, a reasonable searching um, window because we could cover about um, six kilometres of ocean in a single pass. So um, it uh, it took a long time and the work of a lot of people. So it was really a wonderful act. Yeah. And, and, and you were actually on board the Geosounder when the wrecks of both the Sydney and the Cormoran were found. Tell us about that experience. Um, well, um, I was honoured by my fellow directors to represent them um, on board the Geosounder um, during both the search and the filming stages. Um, it was a bit daunting. I was then a 62-year-old housewife, virtually, <laughs> who'd never been to sea. Um, and the Geosounder is only 59 metres long, so she's not a, <laughs> a big ocean-going liner. Um, and we set off in 40-plus degree heat at the end of February in cyclone season. Um, we had factored in um, 10 days virtually of downtime in our 30-day search window just in case we had weather or equipment failure. Unfortunately, we had them all in the first 10 days. We had a cyclone. We had sonar problems. Um and we had a crack in our fuel tank holding 40 gallons of fuel. So the first 10 days, I have to admit, were horrendous. But you have faith in the expertise that you've employed and obviously persistent pace. And um, eventually um, uh, we were successful. Um, On board was the Navy's representative, um, John Perryman, and and um, one afternoon, David, John and I were just, well, they reckon Zona um, transits like watching paint dry. You just watch an empty seabed or geology and we're just staring at this screen of an empty seabed and all of a sudden there was this large black blob slowly appeared at about four pixels every minute. So it's quite slow. Then we saw an explosive debris field and then we saw the forward part of a ship and we knew straight away we'd found cormoran. I burst into tears. (laughs) Typical Mm. female reaction, I suppose. Um, But it was sheer relief because it meant that we were searching in the right area and we'd had so many naysayers trying to tell the government we were looking in the wrong spot and everything. It was just relief to know that we were in the right place and the chances of finding Sydney had just increased. The next four days was pretty horrendous. Um, we, at one stage, David Mearns thought that we might have found Sydney just obliterated in an explosion because we started to come across a whole lot of geology. Um, but finally we realised it was geology, not um, the demise of a ship. Mm. And then suddenly um, on the sonar screens that we were watching, and they were big TV screens 
um, we saw um, the beautiful outline of Sydney sitting upright on the seabed minus the bow and um, a sinking debris field beside us. And I'm going to get emotional just mm. talking about it. Yeah, but, no, I understand. Um, I just thought of the relatives and what this was going to mean to them after 67 years. And um, it was a beautiful feeling. And I will thank my fellow directors for the rest of my life for the privilege of um, letting me be on board for the six weeks of Mm. um, the finding and the filming of those two ships. It's um, something I'll never forget. And when we actually went back and got the ROV crew on board and film the ships, um, you wait while the camera goes down those um, two and a half thousand metres and um, the, the lights are just lighting up empty ocean and then all of a sudden we saw the ex-turret gun of Sydney and that was such a poignant moment because the ex-turret gun, um, the Germans said, was what finished their ship off. Mm. So to find that's your very first sight of a ship after 67 years was quite special. Mm. Was, has anything ever been recovered from the ocean floor from the remnants uh, of, of the Sydney? No. Um, we had a no-touch policy. Um, we did bump, bump into the ship once with the ROV as we were coming around in the dark, um, but it was a definite no-touch policy. We were looking for Sydney's um, life boy um, and I think we would have contacted the authorities to see if we had been allowed to retrieve it, Mm. but we didn't find it. So um, it was, I mean, it's virtually um, where 645 men lost their lives, so... Mm. There definitely was a no-touch policy. There was never going to be any um, skeletons or anything found because uh, 67 years and the microscopic organisms and things that are in the ocean at that depth meant that there was no trace um, of the men um, apart from, you know, a toothbrush or shoes or boots still laced up. So there certainly was that. And probably seeing the damage to that ship and those things lying on the seafloor was um, probably the most emotional thing that I've been through. So, mm. I, I remember as a, as a young boy, this is going back to the Australian War Memorial in the 1970s when it still had the green lino floor, of seeing the Carly float that was an assumption made that that came off the Sydney. Do you know much about that at all? Um, yes, yeah. When when the... Um, we didn't go searching for nearly six days, but the search vessels um, picked up five um, of the German lifeboats and some German um, debris, but they also picked up a life belt from Sydney and that Carly float, which is in the um, War Memorial, um, it was uh, virtually a little ahead of the debris field. So I might personally believe that that Cully float and the one that contained the sailor on Christmas Island were blown overboard during the battle, mm. not the sinking of Sydney several hours later. 
Um, but yes, that um, Carly float is quite poignant and um, it's on display in the memorial. And, and that's a good segue into um, the search of the grave of the unknown sailor on Christmas Island. Now, you've written a memoir of uh, the Sydney called Finding HMA Sydney, and that covers the search of the grave. And was this the only known survivor of the Sydney? Um, yes, he was. Um, he was the only body from the 645 men of Sydney. Uh, he was found floating off Christmas Island 11 weeks after the battle and he was buried with honours in the old European cemetery in February 1942. But unfortunately, Christmas Island was invaded by the Japanese shortly after and all records of the grave were lost. And until 1999, the Navy did not believe that the sailor came from Sydney. Uh, so it was all us researchers who firmly believed that he was a sailor from Sydney that eventually at a parliamentary inquiry um, convinced the Navy with our evidence that um, he was a sailor. Um, I'd um, obviously over those decades had been doing all the work I possibly could and I found some information um, about him that wasn't anywhere else and I also did a lot of work with the people on Christmas Island who had been there at the burial. Then I got a phone call from a gentleman about another matter and he mentioned that he'd been on Christmas Island from 1950 to 52. So obviously the obvious question was, um, do you know where the grave is? And he said, oh yeah, I was shown it. I took a photo. And the next question was, do you still have the photo? And he did. Wow. Um, but unfortunately, he passed it on to the people that were organising the first search by the Navy, um, and the importance of that photo was lost. They thought it was just another photo of the cemetery, not an actual photo of the grave, and they searched elsewhere and couldn't find him. So I had to start lobbying to get the photo and its significance reconsidered, and um, I wasn't getting very far, so I actually had to sit down and virtually do a cold case review going right back to the the very first archival information and um, there was a lot of people who thought they knew where the grave was, so I had to show that they were just assuming and um, being a bit assertive, I sent it off to the several federal ministers and the chief of Navy and they decided there was new evidence and they embarked on the second search and were successful. Mm. And we brought the sailor home and just recently, after a lot of work by some incredible people and the wonderful genetic um, advances and DNA advances of today, he was recently identified as Abel Seaman Thomas Wellesby Clark of Brisbane. Mm. So that was the last piece of the puzzles mm. um, to um, be finalised. So that was a beautiful outcome and, and a credit to everybody involved. It is. And where is Thomas interred now? Um, well, the law is that um, you have to be interred at the closest war grave cemetery to well, where the battle is or where you were found. 
and there are two World Grave cemeteries in WA, one in Perth and one in Geraldton. So he's in Geraldton, um, just a stone's throw from the beautiful Geraldton Memorial that commemorates his, um, his the rest of his crew. So that's quite significant, and mm. the family are quite happy for him to be there and stay there. So mm. that's good. Now, Glennis, what led to your interest in the Sydney? Um, well, my husband's midlife crisis. <laughs> My late husband's midlife crisis, we bought a caravan park at um, a little uh, coastal fishing village called Port Gregory on the coast from Northampton. And when I was there, I've always been interested in history. And when I was there, I heard that the Japanese had shelled Port Gregory in January 1943, which was kept secret from everybody. In fact, most of the authorities didn't know about it. Um, and I started um, collecting oral histories from the local farming families that had been there during the war. But then I noticed that there was a few, um, plus a lady from Horrocks Beach and a family from Gelton, that recalled um, something in late November 1941 when they witnessed a huge explosion shown in the clouds around 1.30am in the morning. Um, and that coincided with the exact time that the cormorant was scuttled and blew up mm. in an explosion that the um, uh, the scientists said equated to 100 tonnes of TNT. Mm. So I started to investigate what battles might have been there in November 41, and obviously that led me to the Sydney. And then you start... Um, presenting your findings to the WA Maritime Museum and then there's parliamentary inquiries and you present papers and, you know, it just, it grew. Goodness. It went on from there. Now, your your memoir is still available to purchase. Where can they purchase it from? Um, well, it's not actually. It's sold out. Mm. Um, I wrote, it's my second book. I wrote, the first book I wrote was, Seeking the Sydney A Quest for Truth by UWA Press. Um, and um, that was my first book and it got a couple of awards, so that was interesting and that sold out. So um, then I did my memoir. My memoir um, was um, a combination, really, of my journey in the Sydney and being on the search vessel, but at the same time, my well-beloved um, husband at the age of 67 passed away with a dementia that he'd had for 10 years. And he actually went into care just as we were trying to put the search together. Um, so I couldn't write a book just about Sydney and leave him out because he was integrated in every page of my journey. So the memoir was quite a, an unusual um, dual topic of um, dementia and <laughs> finding the Sydney. So um, for that reason, I was offered to um, print some more copies, particularly when there was interest when the Christmas Island sailor was identified. But I do have a website and I probably might serialise it at some stage along the way. But no, they're both, um, both books are sold out. So, so people will have to keep an eye on their second-hand 
military bookshops for that. So what a wonderful yes. Yes. journey, yes. And, and thank you for all your efforts in regard to to the search for HMA Sydney 2 and obviously the, the success in, in the finding the wreckage of the Sydney and also of, uh, of, of Thomas, the last known survivor um, yeah. found on Christmas Island. So, Glennis, thank you so much for your time today. That's all right. My pleasure. That's the podcast for today. We are keen to hear your feedback. And if you're listening to us via iTunes or other podcast apps, please leave a review. Your reviews help others find our podcast. You can help support this podcast via Patreon or Buy Me A Coffee. The links are on our website and Facebook page and your support helps us with the production of this podcast. Thanks for listening.